this morning I'm going to start with four seemingly unrelated Bible stories. I have been talking about surrender for a few weeks, and I'm still on that topic. And I'm going to read you four different Bible stories, and then, and then we're just going to keep, keep practicing our surrender to the Lord. So we're going to start in Genesis chapter 2. God has made the Garden of Eden, and he's made Adam, and it says in verse 15, Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to tend it and keep it. And then jumping to chapter 3, Adam and Eve are in the garden. God comes and visits them in the morning, in the evening, in the cool of the day, and they have their walk. And at some point during one of those days, when God wasn't around, uh, the serpent showed up and tricked Eve, and she eats the fruit, and, and you know that story. And then they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. And then the Lord God called to Adam and said to him, where are you? So he said, I heard your voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you that you should not eat? So we're going to come back to these stories, but I just need to read all four of them before we begin. So we're jumping to Luke 15. Jesus is telling a parable. A man had two sons. The younger son told his father, I want my share of your estate now before you die. So his father agreed to divide his wealth between his sons. And a few days later, this younger son packed all his belongings and moved to a distant land, and there he wasted all his money in wild living. And about the time his money ran out, a great famine swept over the land, and he began to starve. He persuaded a local farmer to hire him, and the man sent him into his fields to feed the pigs. And the young man became so hungry that even the pods he was feeding to the pigs looked good to him, but no one gave him anything. When he finally came to his senses, he said to himself, At home, even the hired servants have enough food to spare, and here I am dying of hunger, and I will go home to my father and say, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Please take me on as a hired servant. So he returned home to his father, and while he was still a long way off, his father saw him coming, filled with love and compassion, filled with love and compassion. Let's make sure you got that. Filled with love and compassion, he ran to his son, embraced him, and kissed him. And he said to his, his son said to him, Father, I've sinned against both heaven and you, and I'm not worthy to be called your son. But his father said to the servants, Quick, bring the finest robe in the house and put it on him, and get a ring for his finger and sandals for his feet. Kill the calf we've been fattening. We must celebrate with a feast. For this son of mine was dead and has now returned to life, and he was lost, but now he is found. And so the party began. And so the party began. Yeah, all right. In Luke 19, Jesus tells another story. A certain nobleman went to a far country to receive himself a kingdom and to return. And he called ten of his servants, delivering to them ten minas. A mina is a gold coin, a silver coin. And he said to them, do business until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him, saying, we will not have this man to reign over us. And so it was when he returned, having received the kingdom, he then commanded these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him that he might know how much every man had gained by trading. And then came the first saying, Master, your mina has earned 10 minas. And he said to him, Well done, good servant, because you were faithful in a very little, have authority over 10 cities. And the second came saying, Master, your mina has earned five minas. And likewise, he said to him, You also be over five cities. And then another came saying, Master, here is your coin, which I have put away in a handkerchief. For I feared you, because you are an austere man, and you collect what you did not deposit, and you reap what you did not sow. And he said to him, Out of your own mouth I will judge you, you wicked servant. You knew that I was an austere man, collecting what I did not deposit, and reaping what I did not sow. 
Why then did you not put the money, my money in the bank, that at my coming I might have collected it with interest? And he said to those who stood by, Take the mina from him and give it to him who has ten minas. But they said to him, Master, he already has ten. For I say to you that to everyone who has, more will be given. And from him who does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. But bring here those enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them and slay them before me. And lastly, the fourth story, Jesus talking in Matthew 18. He says, if a man has a hundred sheep and one of them wanders away, what will he do? Won't he leave the 99 others on the hills and go out and search for the one that is lost? And if he finds it, I tell you the truth, he will rejoice over it more than the 99 that didn't wander away. And in the same way, it is not my heavenly Father's will that even one of these little ones should perish. All right, so uh, there's four Bible stories that don't seem to have much in common, except that they do. There is a common thread in there, even though they seem actually pretty opposite of each other. And the theme that I find in there, as I'm talking to you about surrender for several weeks now, the theme that I find here is that God surrenders too. In each of these stories, the character that is God or Jesus surrenders. God made Adam and Eve and put them in the garden and told them to tend it and left and would come and visit them in the evening, in the morning, in the cool of the day. But he surrendered them to the purposes and the assignment for which he created them. And he didn't hang around and micromanage them. In fact, he surrendered them so completely that this is what we have ended up with. God surrenders also. In the story of the prodigal son, the father figure obviously is God. And his son, in greedy rebellion, selfishness, pure selfishness, says, Dad, I want half your wealth. And what does the father do? He surrenders it to him. He gives it to him without a sermon, without instruction, without bossiness. Yes, son, I surrender half of everything I have to you. And then he stands there in the gate of the ranch and watches him walk down the wrong road and doesn't chase him doesn't yell at him, hey, you're going the wrong way, turn around. Here's what you should do with my money. No, you're making a wrong decision, let me save you. He surrendered his son. I'm here to point out to you this morning that God doesn't just expect us to surrender in our circumstances and our relationships and our needs, but he also surrenders. He surrenders us to us, you may have your way, and I surrender that. He lets his son go to the pig pen, knowing that's where that road leads. I know that's where that path goes, but he stands there silently and lets him go. In the next story, Jesus is talking about a, a master who's distributing money to his servants. Obviously, the master is Jesus in the story. He goes away to receive a kingdom. That's the last 2,000 years. And he gives the wealth of his kingdom to his servants. What's he do? He hands over the wealth of his kingdom and leaves. 
The wealth of the kingdom of heaven is in our hands. And Jesus left. That's surrender. I trust you. This is what I made you for. This is the purpose of the kingdom. This is the purpose of your existence. And I surrender you to that. I'm not going to stick around and preach at you and nag you and steer you and micromanage you and helicopter. He just leaves. And in the fourth story, we have a shepherd who's obviously Jesus and the sheep who is us. And Jesus says, if a shepherd has a lamb who goes astray and gets lost. Well, you would think that if Jesus was a caring shepherd, he wouldn't let the lamb go astray and get lost. But Jesus isn't there making sure that the lamb stays in the right place all the time. The lamb is free to wander off and get lost if that's what it wants to do. Why? Because the shepherd has surrendered the lamb. God surrenders us like Abraham with Isaac. In that story, obviously, Abraham represents God and Isaac represents Jesus, but it's every one of us. God surrenders us. Now, the phrase, if you love someone, you'll let them go, is not Bible, but there's some truth to that. Because if the father of the prodigal son had chased him down the driveway, begging and pleading, don't go, don't go, and then he sees his son take the wrong turn and he starts yelling at him and pleading and then that's not working so he starts preaching and nagging and harassing. What's the son going to do? He's going to run faster. He's going to run harder. So the father in the story does the only wise and loving thing which is to stand there and say nothing. Last week I told you about surrendering when I, when I can't control events and circumstances, but God does the same. Well, I, I can't control her, so I have to let her go. I, he's going to have his own way. That's what he, that's what he wants. I, I have to let him go. You've heard me say it every week now for over a month, but surrender is not passive. Surrender is not giving up. It's not not caring. Just try it and you'll find that out. It is not giving up. You, we just sang, let go and trust in, trust in him. And I would think that surrender would, would literally be just letting go and let Jesus be Jesus and let him be the Savior. But it is the hardest thing I've ever tried to do is surrender. So there's nothing passive. There's nothing lay down and die about it at all. It must be tremendously powerful because it takes tremendous strength to do it. So therefore, it must be incredibly valuable and really powerful to surrender. Just try it and see how hard it is. There's nothing passive about it. The father is not laying down and just letting his son do whatever he wants, his heart is exploding in pain. But he lets him go without a word. Because surrender is not passive. It isn't quitting. 
It isn't laying down. It is love. Surrender is love. And Jesus said so in John 10. I'm the good shepherd, and the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand is not the shepherd who owns the sheep, and so when he sees the wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and runs away. When the wolf attacks the flock and scatters it, and the man runs away because he has a hired hand and he cares nothing for the sheep. But I am the good shepherd, and I know my sheep, and my sheep know me. And just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, I lay down my life for the sheep. And no one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. Jesus said, I give, I surrender, I surrender my life. I lay it down for you because I love you. Not because anybody's making me, not because I have to. In this passage, he says, I'm doing it because I love you. Surrender is love, and love cannot be forced. Love has to be surrendered. So when I say God surrenders, God surrendered Jesus to Jesus to do or not do the cross. God did not make him do it. Jesus said, I lay it down because I choose to. I know it's what my father wants and I love him and I want to obey him, but he is not making me do this. In fact, he said, if I uttered the smallest squeak, he would send legions of angels to rip me off of that cross. That's how not forced Jesus was to go to the cross. Jesus laid down his life out of love. Surrender is love. And the Father has to surrender Jesus to be Jesus. I can't make him do this. Or it isn't love. It isn't redemption. So surrender of another person is love. It is giving up our attempts to control and force our bossiness and domination and manipulation and nagging and instructing and arguing and fighting and correcting and judging other people's decisions. If you love them, you'll surrender them. Surrender begins with biting your tongue, but it goes a lot further than that. Surrender is actually being in real peace and having Joyful love while not attempting at all to control the other person's choices. Letting them walk down the road to the pig manure. Love is surrendering control. It is giving freedom. It is releasing responsibility for the other person's success or failure. And this is what God does. He surrenders us to us, hoping that we will surrender us to him. But he actually has to surrender us first, or our surrender isn't surrender. How thorough, how complete, how far is his surrender? It is absolute. I Surrender. I'm not just keeping my mouth shut about your choices 
and your decisions in life, I have for real, I have actually surrendered you. Here's how far it goes, Jesus told us in John. In chapter 5, Jesus says, The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. Jesus said, My Father God doesn't judge any of you. He's, he's let me be the judge of it all. Then three chapters later in chapter 8, he says, You judge me by human standards, but I do not judge anyone. He says, The Father doesn't judge anyone. I don't judge anyone. But then four chapters later in John 12, he says, if anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I do not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. Jesus says, my father doesn't judge anybody. I don't judge anybody. I didn't come to judge you. I came to save you. You will be judged. You will be compared to my word on the last day. I am not judging you now. How is that possible? He's surrendered us. He has so thoroughly, completely loves us and so thoroughly, completely committed to our freedom and to love and to the possibility of us surrendering back to him, that he has completely surrendered us. He is not in heaven trying to micromanage your decisions. He is not watching you with disappointment and nitpicking and helicoptering and trying to get you to do this and that. He's like, all I am interested in right now is saving you from all the stuff you're choosing. I am not judging you. you. We all will be judged on the last day. We will be compared to the word of God and all of us will fail <laughs> and we will need Jesus. But Jesus says on the last day you will be judged. Until then, he said twice, actually he says four times, I do not judge you. Some of you that's a really well duh kind of a sermon. Some of you really need to hear that. That your heavenly father is not watching you with disappointment. I don't mean that he drunkenly approves of whatever you do. I mean he is, he is only interested in saving you, not in condemning you. Jesus is not micromanaging, controlling, pressuring us to do the right thing. And he isn't just keeping his mouth shut. He is totally at peace while we are surrendered. God truly has surrendered you to you. He's totally out of control and he's at peace with that. Some of you have been lied to in church that God is in control. If you've been around here any length of time, you know that's not true. God is not in control in the sense of force, control, steering your decisions in life because you've made a lot of mistakes. You've chosen wrong often. And since that's possible, he has surrendered you. You have freedom of choice. He's surrendered you to you. And he's at total peace with that because surrender is not just being quiet while I'm full of resentment 
and resistance. It is actually being at peace while things are not the way I want. Let me say that again. Surrender is being in actual peace while things are not the way I want. If that's how we have to live, then that's for sure what God is doing. Jesus says, I'm not judging you. I'm not full of angst about the things you've done. I want to save you from them. I'm not wishing I could micromanage your steps. I'm not judging in a condemning sense the choices you're making. Surrender is real love. And real love is surrender. And what he's looking for is for us to surrender us back to him. That's real love. Now, God can direct my steps. He can make my choices. I'm obeying his word as best I understand it. I'm submitted to his spirit. I make my decisions based on what I know he wants. And, and now, he's saving me. He is directing my steps. I give him control. And he can save me from my sin and the consequences of it. He is the father in the, in the prodigal son story. He didn't follow his son out the door. He doesn't go and rescue him from the pig pen. He waits for his son to come to his senses. And that father so thoroughly and completely surrendered his son over to his own choices that he tells the servants and the older brother, my son who was dead is alive again. And the son that was lost has been found. The father in the story completely gave away his son when his son wanted to go down the road. That is a terrifying option for those of us with kids that aren't walking with Jesus. It is really scary when your parents are crazy. or your spouse, or your siblings, or your ex that's raising your kids in a way you do not want them raised. Surrender is the last thing we want to do. And we all know we got to keep our mouth shut. We all know we got to bite our tongue a lot more often than we do. But that is not surrender unless there is genuine peace and genuine love for your siblings or your unsaved adult children or grandchildren or whatever your situation is. That is the only place my own complete surrender is the only place from which I can, when the prodigal son comes home, it's the only, that's the only condition of my heart that will be instant reception and instant party Instead of, I told you so. God is not, you need to hear this. God is not waiting till judgment day to say, I told you so. He's waiting for you to come back home so that he can throw a party. I am not like him. I would like the other person to know a little bit about what they've done. Just a little bit. Just get a little piece of my mind. And the father does that in not a sentence, not a word of sermon, of I told you so, of 
man, you really screwed it up, but I'll forgive you. It's instant party. You were dead and now you're home. Those of you who have unsaved family members that you, that you relate with, and we have to be like or the prodigal son's father. If your parents or your adult killed children or your grandkids know that every time they run into you, they're going to get a nagging sermon, they don't want to be around you and they don't want to come home. And the more we preach and pressure somebody to make the decision that we want in marriage or parenting or at work or at church, more it's going to push somebody down the wrong road. And when somebody might be considering repenting, a quick, I told you so, is going to shut that off. So I'm, I'm just here to point out this morning to you that God actually completely, fully, totally surrenders us to us. In his own heart, he is totally at peace with you so that you can surrender back to him and then the two of you are one. If he steers that in any way, then it isn't surrender on our part. He's manipulated the situation. And it isn't love, it isn't obedience, it isn't worship. So, if that's the way God is, what if the church was like that too? What if the church surrendered people to Jesus and let him be the savior instead of trying to save, and we really mean control, people in their behavior and actions? When I first started seeing a counselor back in January, real early on, she told me, you, you pastors are a psychotic lot. She's like, you, you have the truth, and you know it, and you do it well, but, but you cannot control people to do the right thing. And so I am a recovering control freak, learning to surrender, and it is the hardest thing. But I've been reading and thinking and praying on this, and, and what if I am actually accountable to Jesus for how I treat you, not how I fix you? What if when I stand before Jesus on Judgment Day, he will bring up how I loved you or not, the truth of what I preached, the Bible says that very clearly, teachers will face the stricter judgment, did I preach the truth and did I lead the congregation unselfishly, I don't think he will bring up at all whether you did what I preached or not, because that's totally out of my control. And what if when you stand before Jesus, what if you're accountable for how you treated me instead of whether you judged what I did was right or wrong? What if there was a church where everyone actually lived in the light, where there's no darkness, no secrets, no hidden sin, no midnight visits to dark websites and no secret addictions and no sneaking around, but there was more mercy, 
and love and grace in the room than can be contained. What if there was a church where no one pressured anyone else to be anything or to believe anything, where there was no silent judging or comparing going on, but that everyone in the room had surrendered everyone else in the room to Jesus, and I know it's just my job to love this person and receive them as the father received his son back. I'm not talking about allowing any lies or excuses. I'm, not, I'm talking no darkness at all. I'm not talking permissive of sin or justifying sin. I'm talking always speaking uncompromised truth. But in an atmosphere of mercy and grace where everyone feels totally safe to confess. Like if I bring this out to some people in the church, am I going to get rejected? Am I going to get shunned? Am I going to get ignored and not cared about? Or am I going to be loved more than I was yesterday? I'm not, so I'm not describing a permissive church at all. And I'm not describing a church where everybody knows everybody's dirt, but where every single individual in this church family is known completely and fully by two or three or four other people. And they know you fully. And yet you're fully forgiven and fully loved. And no matter how long it takes you to get it right, we're with you. Wouldn't that be a cool church? That's where I'd want to go. I'm not talking about a church where people cry with you about your problems. Every church does that. I'm talking about you coming into the light with your own sin. I'm talking about instead of us trying to fix you, we'd just help you go to Jesus to get the pig manure off. I have gotten to experience that myself here in the last few months. There are some people very gracious to me and... It's what I want the whole church to be and to experience that the religious bride doesn't know her husband's heart. The counterfeit church doesn't understand Jesus does not want sinners pushed away. He wants to throw a party. But the real bride knows her bridegroom's heart and so somehow the the real church is going to get this right so i invite you to surrender yourself back to god today he has surrendered you so that you can surrender back to him you can come to your senses and get out of the pig pen and come home I also invite you to surrender your loved ones, your spouse, your kids, your parents, your family, people in this church that are difficult for you to get along with. Just give them to Jesus and let him be the Savior. And I know then that my only role is to love and forgive and genuinely be at peace and, and stop judging what I think should happen. So we sing, I surrender all, and all is everything and everyone. Trust Jesus with your kids. Trust Jesus with your ex. 
Trust Jesus with your unsaved family. Go to the party store and buy supplies and get ready. Get ready to throw a party.